If you don't take this offer, the chances are you'll get nothing, said Carter. Pop Dylan replied, well, I ain't got nothing. So if I don't get nothing, I won't have nothing less than I've got. Recognize this quotes movie? Stay tuned to find out or check out the title of this episode of Talking Pictures Trivia. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom... And KJ. Additionally, joining us as a guest this week is... I'm Chris. Thanks for joining us. Chris has joined us for numerous episodes, including Jurassic Park and the happiness of the Catacoris. Chris conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In round one, each question is worth one point, and in round two, each question is worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we followed up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Big movies in 1928 include Noah's Ark, Buster Keaton's The Cameraman, The Man Who Laughs, and today's movie, Speedy. All right. So we have a classic Harold Lloyd movie. Uh, who's often referred to as the third genius behind uh, Chaplin and Keaton. And Speedy follows our good friend Speedy, who is a man about town in New York trying to make his way. He's in love with Jane Dillon, played by Anne Christie, the granddaughter of Pop Dillon, played by Bert Woodcruff, Woodruff, excuse me, who owns and operates the city's last horse-drawn streetcar in Greenwich Village, in the Sheridan Square district of Greenwich Village. And there's some nefarious train men who want to take him out so that they can establish a, a train line there. And what we see is in an effort to defend Pop Dylan so that he can marry her granddaughter, Speedy goes through a number of shenanigans. He changes jobs quite regularly and eventually comes out victorious, but not before meeting a few lovely celebrities. I'll be your questionnaire tonight, presenting handcrafted questions. But before the trivia begins, Nick, if you had only one word to describe Speedy, what would it be? Expeditiously. Chris? Definitely briskly. KJ? Zoomy. And my word would be zippy. It's time for question one. Here's the softball down the plate. Number one. What is the score and opponent of the Yankees game when Speedy leaves to drop off the flowers? Locked in. Oh, no. If you, I'll give you one point if you just get one of those. I'll give you two if you get both. Locked in. Locked in. I'm trying to, to write out the, like, there's math involved here. I'm pretty sure. L locked in. Locked in. <laughs> All right, KJ, you're up at the plate. What do you got? 
Well, for my first swing, the White Sox. The Chicago White Sox. And then here's where I'm, I'm trying to remember, right? What was it? Donut, donut, breadstick, donut. And then donut, 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 pretzel. So is that one to three? One to three when he leaves? All right, Nick, what do you got? I just guessed the Red Sox and three zero. All right, then, Chris, what do you got? I believe it was the White Sox, and I believe the Yankees were winning three to one. All right, then, that's KJ and Chris with Homer's Eat Your Peace. Take your hats off for them, ladies and gentlemen. They are the Sultans of Swat, the heroes of the Bronx tonight. Thank you, gentlemen. And yes, it was three to one in the White Sox. Oh, oh, oh so close, Nick. Well, no idea, know, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, think every, I think every episode should be in this voice, by the way. Just saying. <laughs> All I remember. It won't at all get annoying. <laughs> I, don't, I won't even attempt to try it, but I love every moment of this. <laughs> All I remember from that whole sequence is I thought it was funny that he, they're like, oh, I won't have a, a shop anywhere that's not within phoning distance of yeah. the stadium. <laughs> yeah. I actually did some um, research on the um, uh, radio broadcasts of baseball games. And you really start to see them a little before now. You start to see the first one in 1923. And you see them regularly in Chicago Cubs home games in 1925. But there was a real problem with radio broadcasts because the owners of the clubs thought people wouldn't come to the games so it was really like until the the 30s that you saw regular broadcasts of things so you had to be near the phones because they didn't want you to know what the score was unless you're at the game all right but that is not exactly why i brought this question forward that's an interesting factoid um i wanted to talk about our character here speedy um who is really harold lloyd's horn-rimmed character much in the way chaplin had his tramp um, this is a character that he had developed, that, uh, that Harold Lloyd had developed after years of experimenting with different characters. Uh, and this is the one that really took off initially as a one-reeler and a two-reeler, and then finally in, in full-length features. Yeah, so as I'd mentioned last week, this is my first uh, Harold Lloyd movie. And you could tell he was doing a character in the vein of Charlie Chaplin or, or even Buster Keaton it, it was obvious that this wasn't the first time like the the audience was probably already familiar with this character um, and it was kind of interesting because he's a bit of the straight guy right he's not the comedy guy he's the he's the Abbott not the Costello um, and I, I thought that was kind of interesting that he made it work by being the straight guy see I think he was more reminiscent of Chaplin, but he's not slapstick. I mentioned this in our first impressions last week. There were still sequences where the door wouldn't close or the door wouldn't open and, you know, things happen. In Chaplin, the little bit I've seen of Chaplin, it's to another level. Like, it's just sheer craziness, where his was a little bit more subtle. I still think he had his shtick. It just wasn't as pronounced or in your face as a Chaplin. I really I really enjoyed the character. I... I... I understood that it was a little slapsticky because of the era and because you need to over-exaggerate your motions and you need to over-exaggerate the comedy when there's no audio track to it per se. Uh, but I, I thought it was well done. I thought it was good. I enjoyed the entire movie and I think it's because of his acting. I, like I said, I've never watched a full-length Charlie Chaplin film either, but 
uh, I, I think that maybe that might be a little too much for me if I'm if I'm just taking a wild guess. And I think that this level might be might be the sweet spot for me, honestly. For your first watch of a silent film like this was a really good one. I got I got that impression. Like I really I really did enjoy it. It makes me want to try to go watch others. Maybe not like to I mean maybe not today, but I mean eventually. Marathon. Think, yeah. <laughs> just marathon. That's the one thing that just like the orchestral music that runs for an hour and twenty minutes was a little much. I I, I could have done without that. Welcome to silent films. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of see KJ's point here of he's much more of the, the straight man. And actually Lloyd started out trying to be a dramatic actor in that. Um, he trained a little bit, we're not trained, but was in Max Sennett's studio, who, if anybody knows who Max Sennett is, he's the Keystone Cop guy. He's the guy who developed the Keystone Cops. He also helped establish Chaplin. Um, and so all of these actors, I think even Buster Keaton went through, through Sennett's studio. But there is a sort of uh, more uprightness about him. He's a little more polished, let's say. He's a little more well-dressed than the Tramp. Or even even than Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton has a very particular, we all know the, the stone face thing that Buster Keaton does. And initially, he was very tramp like in his performances, Lloyd. But uh, when you see him kind of change over, is in uh, a sailor made man is the full length feature, but in a lot of shorter features starting in uh, like nineteen eighteen or so he starts developing this character with these glasses and you know he's uh, he's a little more debonair i think than chaplin he's a little bit better looking um he's also seems to be a little more cocky i would say he's a little more confident than the tramp he is and and going to nick's point with the the door that wouldn't stay shut i think tom you had mentioned um buster keaton would overreact to that door not being shut whereas or underreact right or underreact, is it? Yeah, so, he's stone oh, 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 right, stone-faced. Yep, underreact, yep. Chaplin's the over. Well, no, Chaplin would... I guess, Tom, when you were talking about it, it was a tree that was being ran into. Um, Buster Keaton would fall down, and then Chaplin would bow to the tree, like as mm -hmm. a, that, the, the style of comedy. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing I noticed about Harold Lloyd is the props were disposable. Uh, for example, at one point, he's got the watermelon, as he's hiding behind the watermelon from uh, the thug, I guess. I'm not sure. Um and I was waiting for the final punchline of the watermelon joke, but he didn't need it anymore, so he just threw it in the street. Like, there, it was a little less... Um, the, the jokes were a little less crafted. They were a little less uh, put together. What's the word I'm looking for here, guys? Um, there, there artisanal? A, yeah. Well, there seemed to be lots of a button, right? Like, you imagine with Chaplin, um, he does something. There's a little button on it. Uh, even, so even when he picks up the watermelon, like you're saying, he he throws it away, um, you know, where with you imagine there's like a little bit of action that Chaplin finds with that watermelon. Um, and I agree with you. I think it's a really good observation that there is this sort of uh, uh, less attention paid to many of the props. Yeah, with, with Chaplin, eventually that watermelon would end the scene or it would be reintroduced and it would be the final slip, the final punctuation if it starts the scene it's going to end the scene there's more symmetry there's more um yeah thought <laughs> artesian put in structure mm -hmm. yeah more structure yep yeah i like that there's more symmetry yeah i like that yeah i agree i think it's a really smart observation it's time for question two step on down to coney island and win the special prize 
Gentlemen, given every day at 11 o'clock, what is the special prize? Locked in. Locked in. I swear I saw this movie. Locked in. All right, Nick, can you knock down the milk bottles and get the special prize? What's the special prize? Money. All right. KJ, what do you have? Well, this wasn't the milk bottles, though, right? This it was wasn't the, the milk okay. bottles, ooh, though. Ooh, I... <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Because was... <laughs> they won a lot of prizes. Um, they did. Yeah. They had to put it. A... The the big, you're saying 11 o'clock? 11 p.m.? I cannot imagine mm-hmm. staying up that late. Um, A crib. It was a, I'll call it a crib. Maybe a cradle. Maybe I'm using the wrong word. Crib. That was cradle. actually going to be my guess because I remembered it was in the moving van. And I didn't know why they were carrying it around. Oh, man. Okay, right. keep going. And Chris, what do you have? I was going to say the rocking crib cradle. I'm not sure what they're actually called, but it's the one that rocks. Yes, that's. I'll I'll give you the points there. I I, I said bassinet. I don't. You know, whatever. The, the the thing you put a baby in that rocks back and forth. Um, very good. So I brought this question forward. Not uh, though. I love how he initially tries to turn it down because it makes him nervous. That made me laugh. Um, but anyway. Actually, I like when they had the sequence where they pretended they were in a house in a moving van, which is interesting. And then I he looks down that, at the crib and there's two babies with his horn rim glasses on. <laughs> yeah, what, were they things of sugar or like potatoes or something? Something like else. Yeah. yeah, and they turn into the babies with the glasses on. That was that was really funny. Um, but I have to say, this is my favorite sequence. This is probably everybody's favorite sequence, I imagine, is the, the Coney Island sequence. Um, it's amazingly beautiful. Not only is it busy and uh, filled with all this action, all this kind of comedy, as well as a certain untoward gesture, which was the first one in film history, but uh, it also, when you get to the night part and you see all of the lights kind of hovering over the sand, I mean, it's actually pretty gorgeous to look at. Um, and I love, I, I, and I think speaking to buttons and whatnot, them leaving in a van that turns into a makeshift home in the end, I think is pretty beautiful as well. I, I, I couldn't go on and on about the sequence, but I want to know what you guys felt about it. Well, Tom, just that, that uh, the jester you were talking about, just to clarify for the audience, was the same one in the Top Gun movie. We could say middle finger, right? Yeah, I just thought it was more fun. To- oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do they give the middle finger in the Top Gun movie? Well, they're communicating. While they're oh, oh, right, right, right. In the beginning of the movie, yes, yeah, yeah. But that was, yeah. He gives himself the middle finger, which is in a in a window. Uh, excuse me, in a mirror, and it is the first time we know of in which the middle finger is captured on camera. That is very interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that I was watching history. Yes, you were. I did not either. <laughs> this, this, this scene was by far my favorite in the whole movie. Uh, I think. I'm not from around the New York metropolitan area. I grew up a little bit further south from here. So I actually just experienced Coney Island for myself maybe two years ago for like the very first time ever. And, you know, it's 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 got a certain old world appeal to it. And like seeing it in this movie in its heyday was like fantastic. Like I saw the steeplechase that was not operational on the pier that, you know, just kind of sits there as a relic and to actually watch it in motion with people riding it, enjoying themselves in the movie was, was a really, really great to see. Uh, and I think that was true of all of the rides. Like the spinning wheel was fantastic. Uh, I, I, they didn't, they didn't feature 
the roller coaster though, which I thought was a, was a miss. But at the same time, I thought it was it was a really cool scene. Now the cyclone. Yeah, the cyclone. There you go. It might not have existed. <laughs> and is that is, is the is the cyclone a different pier? Because this is the Luna Pier. Right? Was it was the cyclone on a different pier. Or am I making making stuff up? I think it's right around there. Like I said, I'm not a I'm not a Coney Island expert. This scene, but not not to kind of take up too much time here. But this scene to me felt disjointed from the rest of the movie. It feels like the beginning of the movie is about you know the he has a job. He's trying to help his parent. He's trying to help the grandparent with the 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 trolley car. Then they take a break and they both go to Coney Island, which arguably is my favorite scene, but there's no real link to the trolley car other than it's his granddaughter. And then they get done with Coney Island and they go right back to the, the trolley car plot for the rest of the movie. So it just kind of, it seemed like it was disjointed. Like, was this shot before as like a, like a, like a one reeler? And then they decided to put it into a, a bigger feature film? Or do you think this was always part of this movie? It was always part of the movie, and it um, it was in nineteen twenty seven money a one hundred thousand dollar sequence, a hundred thousand dollar plus sequence. The cyclone was built in nineteen twenty seven. This movie came out in nineteen twenty eight. Not sure when they filmed it, so it might have been being built under construction. Yeah, yeah. It was this movie was filmed in the i believe in the spring or summer of 1927 yeah this scene is very sunrise um chris we watched another movie that starts with a a husband kind of trying to kill his wife but then they kind of make up and they i don't know i guess it's not coney island is it tom i don't know where they go no it's in miscellaneous it's it's not a real city okay it's sort of based on some german cities but it's a, a a a fabulation um but but kind of similar to this they go to an amusement park type place maybe not literally an amusement park but another reason i think this film looked so good or i know it looked so good is sunrise did not do this did not visually do this quite as well and i know they were experimenting in sunrise with the multiple things happening at once but man this was crisp this was it was just gorgeous to look at every piece of wood on coney island all the lights at night when they when they cut to the the the, the lights and uh, you see that same luna intro area again and, it, and it's at night oh it looked really good some of those rides look like a lot of fun too i bet you there was a lot of lawsuits so that's why some of them don't exist <laughs> i like the log flume that actually had a person that had to row it back to shore <laughs> 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 yeah I, I i think i like the rotating floor ride the I, disc like the metal discs that they all had to hold on to yeah the, there's no there's one where the floor just kind of goes up and down very quickly it, it oh. looks like very slow bumper cars it looks surreal right because they mm-hmm. those were like ocean waves and they were riding them mm-hmm. yeah the yeah yeah that's that what was it looked like pretty trippy to see actually i'm surprised yeah. it worked um and how do you make a floor that does that Nice. They lost the plans. That's why we've never seen it again. <laughs> well, yeah. guys, I don't, I've not been to modern Coney Island either. Mm. But if you go to old Coney Island, bring a helmet. Maybe two, because <laughs> it looked very dangerous to me. Yeah. Co- Coney Island, uh, I used to live pretty close to Coney I used to do. I used to run to Coney Island pretty frequently because I was living that close to it. Um, you should bring a helmet for different reasons now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's... And we lost Coney Island. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a kind of different neighborhood. But uh, 
it has, still has a lot of those rides, though not exactly all of them. And the, the Luna stage facade really isn't there anymore, which is so gorgeous. And I mean, it's, it looks like, like the Chicago white city, right? Of the 1890s, those old pictures of it. I mean, it's, it's just so pretty to look at. And those two actors, you know, Harold Lloyd and, um, and his co-star who didn't really do that much. Uh, I forgot her name. Um, Anna Christie are, you know, kind of lovely together. And there's a bunch of these like fun little gags that they do. Um, I don't know. They're, they're very charming. And that I love that dog <laughs> who they, they pick up while at Coney Island. Um, and I think a lot of silent movies did this, Chris, where to your point of, it seemed out of sequence or something like that. Um, it's really a movie about these gags, right? So kind of what comedy was. The way they wrote these movies would be that people would just get into a room and come up with as many gags as they could. And a plot was sort of loosely assembled around the funniest of the gags. And things would be thrown out of the, the film if they just weren't funny. And actually screen tests, Harold Lloyd pioneered screen tests. Then I found an old, um, you could actually see this on, on the Criterion Collection, an old uh, scale of how he measured his screen tests, which I can explain if you're interested. But um, the, the Coney Island sequence is, is this opportunity to kind of get everybody laughing, to get people to enjoy the gags and, you know, watch those two actors play off each other, you know, to, to see him like trying to deal with the umbrella and then get paint on him. Um, to like tie the dog up and everything falls over when he ties the dog up to the, the unsteady table and creates a big mess. Um, the, the, the crab that bites everybody on the butt. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's what these movies And they are. kept going with that one. Yeah, yeah. They, they, there's a lot of crab action in this, uh, in this sequence. Um, I think that's why you have this, this sequence that's extended but not necessarily connected to the plot. Mostly because the plot is somewhat secondary to the comedy. Here we are at the end of round one and the points are tied for first place in a heated race. We have Chris and KJ both with three points apiece. Right behind them is Nick with the big zero, but that's all right. He's coming up. He's coming fast. The kid's got energy in him. I know it. He's going to be in Cooperstown before you know it. All right, we will see you after this break. Hello, and, and welcome, welcome back, back, back to B-Side. B -side. B -side. Finally, it is B-Side. Today we're going to be talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We're going to be discussing the famous W.F. Murnau film from 1927, Sunrise. The Icelandic movie from 2015, Rams, Juzo Itami's 1985 picture, Tam Popo, and today I'm going to be talking about a good old film that we just covered, and this is 1984's Ghostbusters. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side, wherever you listen to Talking Pictures Trivia. And we're back. We're at the critical point of our episode where we ask the guest a key question. Chris. If you could write your own sequel for Speedy, what would it be? Well, I have to admit that I believe that the most compelling character of this entire movie was the dog. So I want, <laughs> I want to, I would like, 
I would like a, a, a prequel slash into the movie slash sequel of how the dog got to Coney Island. What happens when we're not seeing the dog on screen during the movie? And then finally, what happens at the conclusion after the trolley's been saved? Does the dog get to join the family? Do they get adopted? That's what that's what I would like to know. I didn't know I if this was going to be like a Lady in the Tramp scenario. Yeah. <laughs> it, could, it very well could be. Can we call it sporty? <laughs> you can call it whatever you want. <laughs> I'm trying to look up the dog's name. I used to know it. I think it's, I think it's King Tut, was King the Tut. the name of the dog. I think so. And Tom, you may have information on this. Is this going to be the first silent movie about a dog? No, I'm sure not. It I'm is sure King not. Tut the dog. King as Tut, yeah. The dog. Okay, so, so now, now we have an entire new through point that we we gotta take this dog back to his roots of ancient Egypt and, and deal with all the mythology <laughs> and find uh -huh. out that he's actually like an ancestor of an old dog that was owned by the pharaohs. This is <laughs> this is pure gold. Thank you very much. They thought they worshipped the cats, but truly it was King Tut the dog. Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. There you go. All the attention. Yeah. This is actually sounds like the plot of the most recent Scooby Doo movie, where they have they find the um, the like they find out I think Scooby is the ancestor of the dog of Alexander the Great, <laughs> and then they have to like go to hell or something to resurrect Alexander. It's a it's a very odd movie, but anyway, it's it's not really related. I do um, want to let you know though, if you enjoyed King Tut the dog's performance, he has four acting credits on IMDb. Um, he was in Speedy, as we know. His first performance was in One Minute to Play as the team mascot. And there were two shorts, Just a Bear and In Conference. So I know what I'm doing this weekend. Yep. Well, if another really thing you can do this movies weekend. between 1926 to 1931 that involve King Tut the Dog, you're in luck. Another thing you can do this weekend, Chris, I just saw on, a, on an app called Just Watch, um, someone made a movie called The Fast and the Furriest. Where the dogs are driving around. So if we're looking for more is, dog related movies. Is it all about family? Because that's really all that matters in a Fast mm -hmm. and Furious movie. It's got to be about family. It's time for question three. What is the name of the cab company Speedy works for? Locked in. Locked in, but it's it's a, a fragment yeah. of an answer. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to like see mm. if I can pull it together it's like trying to remember something from a dream i have partial words yeah uh, that's a good question when it just makes you want to kill yourself <laughs> <laughs> this got real dark <laughs> yeah no this is like my jeopardy nightmare when it's oh no i know you know i have a fraction of the answer when i'm playing jeopardy okay i'm gonna lock in all right nick what do you got the only one taxi i had only one i also had only one but i think it was cab company not taxi company yeah i couldn't remember there's another word yes so i'm gonna give everyone points that you got only one sometimes it's only one garage is what they have only but one garage. yeah they might have said only one taxi on the taxi yeah that's I why i couldn't they, remember yeah uh, the, the point is only one if you get only one all right, so I, here I brought up this question um, to talk about the city, to talk about the setting. Uh, a lot of this movie actually was filmed in Los Angeles, including the Sheraton Street section, kind of Pops and Speedy's home area. Um, 
that area. So a little, can, can I give a little history or is that, Yeah, but I want to jump in real quick too. Sure, the sure, end sure. sequence though, that's New York, right? That is New York for yeah, the most okay, part. For yeah. Sure. When he's rushing back, that is, that is New York. Yeah. Um, the Sheridan. So the, the movie takes place in the Sheridan square area of Greenwich village, um, which at that time was much more bohemian than it's depicted in the movie. In the movie it's depicted as kind of a working class neighborhood. That was sort of what the neighborhood was in the 19 teens until the city created a, a North South route that went right through the center of that area. And they knocked down about 200 houses to do it. And so it seems like the reason, and it was also the le- the last area in New York to have a horse-drawn carriage. That that literally was true. So it seems that though this movie kind of captures the spirit of the late 1920s, um, Babe Ruth is obviously the, the embodiment of that. It does seem to be calling on a earlier, an even earlier New York, a New York of the 19-teens. And New York when... Um, the Greenwich Village wasn't like this hip place, but it was sort of a, a neighborhood, right? It was sort of a locality. And this movie seems to dance between this idea of locality and, and the parochial and this really like big, loud, jazzy, cosmopolitan city. Um, and I was wondering what people thought of the setting, that kind of energy that New York was displayed as having in this picture. I, I thought that the the car scenes with the taxi cab and the the end scene at the end were were incredible incredibly well done for the time, like they looked awesome for a movie from the 1920s. I was very enamored with uh, how they probably did it and how probably dangerous it was for the actors that were performing it because there probably weren't too many stunt doubles or any anything else going on then. Uh, I really liked. In the opening scene, I think they do this with the orchestral music. They're showing you the wide shots of New York and they're they're showing you these different like crazy, very bustling areas. And then when they show you Greenwich Village and they say this is the place with the last horse-drawn carriage, the music actually slows in tempo. And it's like the 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 that's like everything just moves a little slower here. And that's where I like the name Speedy because he's a speedy man in a, in a kind of like a slower area of the city. And I thought that, that was that that was a cool little thing. So I I really enjoyed the city as a character in that it kind of like had a, a it had something to do with the actions that were going on and that individuals from outside this little locale as you called it are trying to invade it and trying to make it their own and trying to to change it to 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 their whim and speedy is the character the hero that's trying to save it even though he is himself probably more like the other locales as opposed to the the slower kind of slow pace of uh, of Grange village yeah, New York looks gorgeous, and New York looks gorgeous in a lot of movies. Right? I mean, Ghostbusters for one. Uh, can anybody think of any other movies? All of the other movies. All There's of the millions other movies. of movies. <laughs> yeah. Of yeah. different genres. I mean, New York is a very popular uh, backdrop for a movie. Uh, yeah, you, you get the idea of just kind of people rushing in, and his movement in the cab or in the horse-drawn carriage through those major areas, especially when he's going past the old customs house, which I now believe is the museum of the American Indian all the way downtown, which is in Ghostbusters too, right? That's where, that's where um, Vigo the Carpathian Vigo is. The Bar- <laughs> yeah. That was filmed in um, what. It's then- Vigo. Yeah. But that's the same area, right? 
they're filming in the same area though it was it was new york's custom house when uh when harold lloyd was filming um i think that that looks great and of course you get the woolworths building in the background which is also in the opening shot which was the tallest building in new york city at this time the chrysler building still had i think the chrysler building doesn't come up until 32 or so and then the empire state buildings like a few months later um so you do have these sort of landmarks being touched on um, don't forget the uh, trip up to the bronx i yes, love that sequence that's that was great, great. old time yankee stadium and we're actually seeing real game footage that was amazing <laughs> yeah i know you're going right over the mccomastan bridge and yeah no that was all filmed you know right in front of yankee stadium um the scene where Babe Ruth is giving out baseballs to the, the orphans was an actual thing Babe Ruth was doing, and they just took that footage. And <laughs> no way! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what I will tell you, I noticed an inconsistency during that scene because when he was in the live setting with all the throwing all the balls for the orphans, he gets in the cab, and all of a sudden he's wearing a cap. But they go back and forth with some scenes where he just has slick back hair, and other scenes he's got the cap on. And it's cut intertwined that he clearly wasn't taking his cap on and off within the taxi cab. So I wonder if that had something to do with it. They filmed some of it live and then they needed more of the sequences when he was getting carted around and then they just lost that consistency. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could fill in some of those, those gaps. The, the sequence with Ruth in the, in the car was filmed later um and ruth is in a it, it was i've seen photographs of it it's a cutout car with cameras on it but it's still being driven through new york when he's going over the mccomastan bridge he's actually going over the bridge um but he's you know sitting in the car with cameras on him so it's, it's a cutout and drawn vehicle for that ruth was also had just finished a movie called um come home babe where he was the star, directed by the same director of this film, Ted Wilde. And that movie was not particularly successful and it is also lost. We no longer can see Come Home Babe, Ted, Ted, uh, Babe Ruth's you know, starring picture. And so Ruth had a, a relationship already with the director for this, but that sequence was, um, was filmed and I think he did have to rush off to a Yankee game right after. Um, another interesting thing, not to go on and on, I'll let you guys talk about Babe Ruth, is, um, so this is filmed in 1927. What is special about Babe Ruth's 1927 season? Does anybody know? All my Babe Ruth knowledge comes from the Sandlot. Oh, <laughs> okay. So Babe Ruth in 1927 set his home run record with 60. That's when he had the, the most home runs he, he ever hit. Breaking his, I think 1922 was when he hit 59. Um, and then Babe Ruth, um, supposedly there is a you were marketing. Close to, I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. I'm so sorry. What was it? 1921. 1921 was. 1921 was 59. Yeah. Okay, but 1927. Um, and so when they were filming this, they didn't know that. But there's footage of Babe Ruth, or, or at, at least stills of Babe Ruth, giving supposedly Harold Lloyd his 60 home run bat, the bat he hit 60 home runs with, was which was used to market this movie. Um, of course, that photograph was taken months before he actually hit 60 home <laughs> runs. The marketers just went, oh, this is this will sell the film. And they took it and they lied about it. Um, but that, that that ended up being kind of what we call what synergy, I think, is the the, yeah. the, the, the term for that. Um, 
by the way, and not to keep talking about Babe Ruth, but I always remembered him as more of a stout gentleman. He seemed not as uh, large in this film he, as I've remembered. He, he gets bigger. <laughs> Later in life, right? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and between he had some down years. I I want to say I thought he was fairly like trim for what I remember. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing footage of Babe Ruth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. Ha- he did get a little chunky at one point and then trimmed down for some of these later seasons. And he has some great seasons between twenty seven and I want to say like thirty two or, or or so. And he started to see a decline after that. Um, but anyway, and also yeah, I took uh, us on a baseball tangent. Yeah, sorry. sir. You, you, well, that's fine. Um, you it's also great. see you see Lou Gehrig if you look carefully. Lou uncredited. Gehrig is yep, I saw uncredited that. in the background, sticking his tongue out. Um, so this this kind of spawns into another thing. This kind of idea of celebrity and Babe Ruth as being like the modern man, and especially at you know like the embodiment of New York, almost the embodiment of America, and this kind of like local parochial guy. Uh, running into him and elevating him and wondering what what you guys thought of like the energy that having a figure like Babe Ruth brings to this movie. Probably more than they even realized. I mean, he was a celebrity back then too. Don't get me wrong. It's not like he wasn't, it's not like he was an unknown, but his celebrity in the world of baseball over the years. I mean, he's one of the OGs, you know what I mean? Like you can know nothing about baseball and you probably heard of Babe Ruth. Yeah, he's just ubiquitous with the sport at this point. I, I even, even for the younger generation, they still know who Babe Ruth is. They still know a couple of the bigger names. I mean, do you think any kids that are in their 15, like 15 or 16 year old know who Mark McGuire is? or Sammy Sosa, or these other people that broke the home run record, but everybody still knows who Babe Ruth is. There's something about him, his persona, probably because he was a Yankee. Yankees are really good about tradition and parading their past stars and working on the idea like how many championships they've won. So I think it's a little bit the team he played for and just like he was iconic at the time. He was like the one and only at the time. Can you think of any modern examples, Tom, of somebody who represents America in a movie that is in the city or the locale? Like that same idea that you're talking about that Babe Ruth represent, is there a modern equivalent? I, you know, I really can't think of one. I would think that though I don't believe this happened, um, it, it seemed like Obama had a lot of celebrity surrounding him. Right. He was a, a president who really used celebrity to his advantage. And imagine if he popped up in a movie, you might have something like that energy right, going on. I was um, going to say, what movie was that? I, that I don't one. think so. I mean, the only, the only thing I remember was uh, Between Two Ferns. He, he showed up on that. Um, you know, and this is not whatever, a, a political statement. It's just he, no, I know. he had that kind of um, representing America celebrity. And it's, uh, we've talked about this, I think, in our, when we talked about, uh, oh God, what was that? What was the Canadian movie with the S&M, um, James Woods? It was um, Videodrome. Videodrome, right? <laughs> It took place in Pittsburgh. That's how I was thrown off for the audience. No, you should have seen all of our faces on camera. Tom's like, remember that movie we did? That was... No, it, it was takes place movie. in Toronto. It takes place in Toronto. Oh, 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 that's right. The video feed comes from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's that, oh, movie, that one. <laughs> I think in that episode we talked about how, like, 
everything is much more individualized and whatnot. And so I think having one of these transcendent figures who, rep, who is a celebrity for everyone is a lot more difficult today than possibly it was back then. So I, I have a harder time thinking of like- You even see that in Hollywood. There were the Hollywood elite and then there was nothing else. Now there are so many niches and so many different platforms and broadcasts that the waters have been muddied on where you are in the celebrity ranks. Our, our attention has been divided so much. We can pretty much pick and choose what we want to be entertained by. At this moment in time in history, it was you watched this, you listened to this, you read about this, or you didn't do anything at all. So like you didn't really have a choice who you were going to like be enthralled with because it was it was Babe Ruth or it was nobody else or it was, you know, what this movie actor and nobody else. They would not a lot of choice back then. Maybe well, LeBron. Michael Jordan. One of them. Well, I was going to say, what about Space Jam? Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah. Um, Which one? But, well, and that's he said LeBron, <laughs> so I stopped because he might. I don't know who it was. LeBron in the second one. The second one he was, was a fun like movie, the guys. Main yeah. feature. He was. I didn't okay. see it. I I'm not that familiar with LeBron, but I mean Michael Jordan. Everybody knew in the '90s. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't a locale, and I I don't. Yeah, well, so they, I don't know they, if it quite hits the same he, mark, but he was the face of Team USA in those Olympic games. So yeah, there you go. Every one of those years, him, Magic go. Johnson, like they were, they were USA every four years. Yeah, Jordan I, I think, was a big deal. Yeah, I think Jordan might be the the closest we could think of. That's a really good grab, KJ. This the Space Jam thing. Um, yeah, it would be like Michael Jordan getting into your cab. And needing a ride to you know wherever the hell the Bulls play, <laughs> Bulls Stadium. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> they played at the they played at the United Center back then. The United Center. Go. Okay, thank you, Chris. Yeah. All right, here we are in question number four. Chris and KJ are in their lead with five points, and Nick is right behind with two. Oh no, oh. that means I'm out. Gentlemen, I'm going to make this question worth three points. To uh, give Nick a episode. chance. And That's exactly right. <laughs> it's just random. There are no rules. Nothing matters. Here we go. It's time for question four. Where is the hideout that the crooks take Pop's train? Locked in. Locked in. No, that still probably doesn't mean I'm going to have a chance. <laughs> Locked in with a guess. That handwriting was kind of sloppy. I know they show it to us a few times, but... I was going to say, you see it more than once. Yeah, and you, you do see the street sign. Oh, I didn't know that. KJ, what do you got? I have Gibbs Street. All right. And Chris, I'll give it to Chris. Chris, what do you have? I, I think it's Kent Street, but I'm, I'm doubting myself now. And Nick, what do you have? I think if... That is the right name. He's going to have the episode because I also have Kent Street. Oh, and that is the right ah. name. All right. And Chris comes out in the lead. Well done, Christopher. Oh, man. You that have was. won the award. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I brought this question forward. We talked a little bit about this. Um, but that sort of ending sequence, the the sort of adrenaline aspect of this movie, there's a lot of, and this is true of, of a lot of silent film actors, um, really Harold Lloyd this, did this a lot, as well as Buster Keaton, 
but the sort of daring of their stunts, the sort of riskiness of the things they were doing and how that kind of affected the pace, the kind of, I, I love the adrenaline in this movie. It feels like Ben Hur, right? <laughs> At times watching these this horse run. <laughs> um, the, being dragged behind. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if Charleston hasn't had a cameo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was wondering what you thought of the like the kind of um the stunt aspect to it, which is a huge deal in, in films at this time. Chris alluded to it earlier with that ending sequence. I just thought about the amazing amount of coordination that it would take to pull that off. I mean, they're going through a lot of city streets and I understand maybe they're speeding up the film at some point to make things look more daring, but still there was a lot of elements going on there. I I did really like the scene and like, I like Nick alluded to, I thought it was very well done and it seemed like it was ahead of its time. And I, you could tell in some of the cab ride chases that they're looking like it's not real. But a lot of the trolley stuff looked like that was through the lens. That looked like that was through the camera. They were driving that trolley haphazardly through a street, which kind of boggles my mind that, you know, New York was ever at a fashion where you could close streets and have trolley cars run all over like it was in that movie. I, I must admit, though, that I felt like it, it. this scene wore on for maybe a couple beats too many. I you know like oh we got a flat tire now we got to fix the rail i'm going to use a manhole cover and then something else happens and then we're going to fix it then something else happens over the the horse are going to run away well i'm going to get two horses instead so it seemed like it went on a little bit more and i know that's kind of the 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 mo of these types of movies these silent movies but at the same time i i think i could have taken one last gag in uh in this film just in in this scene alone see chris the open season uh elements where they're just running haphazard through the city in my mind they didn't get permits they didn't let anyone know and they just that's, a, that's exactly what i was thinking like do you think that when they went to coney island or any other any other scene where there's just random people on the street do you think any of them knew that they were on camera or did they just see like a tripod on the boardwalk and as they were walking by doing their own thing and they they just kind of got captured in film little did they know that's what i, oh. that's, that's what I felt like this this trolley scene was they didn't all sign releases. <laughs> they, it was so a lot of this was actually filmed in Los Angeles. One way to know the difference is if you see um, telephone or telegraph poles. New York doesn't have those. So whenever you see those, you know ah. that's a that's a Los Angeles thing. And Sheridan Street did not actually look like that by 1927. So that was also constructed in Los Angeles. When Harold Lloyd came to New York, it was an enormous deal. I think we tend to think of celebrity as existing on a smaller scale back then. But since, as as we've already talked about in this episode, there are fewer outlets for entertainment, celebrity actually was probably more elevated, more, um, more emphasized in this world. So when Harold Lloyd came to New York, it was a major news story. You also had to see people in person. You couldn't go on YouTube and watch their video. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So when he did a shot, what you're seeing a lot of times is the, the cops on screen are real and they're there to keep the people back because there were just crowds and crowds of people trying to get a look at Harold Lloyd. So it wasn't the like the tripod that was like sneaky there and nobody knew what was going on. Um, there was a lot of energy and a lot of excitement about Lloyd shooting in New York. Now there's some sequences where they are 
being sneaky um you know there's there's times when you see people kind of jumping onto camera and what have you uh, but there was a lot of cooperation between the police and lloyd and a lot of excitement about lloyd he was a big big name by this point it's time for movie Ren. tom i have the answers to your bonus questions so i'd like to read them and i want you guys to come up with the question <laughs> go for it Let's all right start. so here we go number one the hitting of the head with a bread roller during the fight the bell of the trolley speedy whistling the trumpet the whistle anybody know the question shout it out i speedy the, the wait this is speedy, one question yeah speedy. this is, this is the answer this is this would have been oh, the answer this, to these one are, question oh this these are um these are diegetic sounds diegetic sounds (laughs) made the list it has been almost two years since i've learned what a diegetic sound is and i was so excited to write them all down tom would you like to refresh our audience's familiarity Uh, with diegetic sounds diegetic sounds are sounds that occur within the action of the movie they occur within the life of the movie non-diegetic sounds would not occur within the life of the movie so for example the soundtrack Right, that that is not the characters are not hearing that soundtrack. One hopes, um, so that would be a non-diegetic. And and early silent movies, as they're beginning to develop limited sound capacity, start experimenting with diegetic sounds. So you'll have a silent movie, and one sound or two sounds or three will be diegetic, which made everybody super happy. I'm sure they blow a whistle. You actually hear a whistle, Chris. Yes. Yeah. And then the the other the other answer I have, um, and honestly, Tom may be the the sole questioner, the the, the sole questioner here. Um, the answer is marching through Georgia. Oh, that was his second movie, right? About um, the Civil War, his second full length movie about the Civil War or or post Civil War. I'm so. not sure about that, but that's the song that played through the fight between the gangsters and the civil oh. rights. Oh, oh, really? Okay. Very yep. good. Oh. Not mentioned in the movie, so it would have broken the rules, but I thought that mm. was also uh, mm-hmm. appropriate for a Tom episode. Oh. <laughs> I actually <laughs> yes. have a somewhat related trivia mm. question that has nothing to do with the confines of the movie, but we were talking earlier about people phoning in to get baseball scores and whatnot, mm. and then talking about the evolution into radio. Well, I'm going to jump ahead to television. When was the first televised Major League Baseball game? Oh, God, I would say 1932. Okay, we had quite a variety there. KJ, would you like to chime in with a guess? Yeah, in Ferris Bueller. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 32, you actually see him against the cubs right you see ruth televised against... televised not not videotaped but televised televised would you like to read i'm gonna your... i'm gonna go with the 40s then 42 okay it actually was august 26 1939 mm-hmm. it was a game between the cincinnati reds and the brooklyn dodgers at ebbets field although television was still in its infancy so it was how many like people actually saw that broadcast yeah exactly mm-hmm. hmm very good. 
Okay, now back to Speedy. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to think, so this, we, I want to hear from Chris a little more. Uh, and I want to know, yeah, um, so this is Chris's first silent film experience. Uh, what surprised you about like going into a silent film, sitting down and watching it? Um, and maybe why haven't you seen one before? Like what, what, what gave you some hesitancy? I never had hesitancy. Uh, it's just never, never had the reason to watch one. I mean, I, I know of Buster Keaton. I know of Charlie Chaplin. I've seen little snippets of what they've done, like little YouTube videos or just like I go clips in a film school in a, in a film class I had once in college. Uh, but I really felt as if I didn't need to watch a full length feature because I felt like the snippets gave me everything I needed. Like they, they pretty much showed me what the entire movie would be. And I don't think that this movie really dissuaded me from that opinion. Although there were things in this movie that I liked and I liked the movie from beginning to end, like I mentioned in the trolley thing, they just sort of took the gag one step too far, one step too far, I should say. Uh, and that, that kind of like got, I feel, I feel as if I don't need to see a Charlie Chaplin movie right away because I kind of know what's going into it. That being said, I did enjoy this. I really did. Uh, I, I always bring up, you know, how my wife sees these movies. She came down about 20 minutes in and said, why is the music just continually playing? <laughs> and I had to explain to her, like, <laughs> like when they showed these movies when they first came out that, you know, they didn't have any sound. So there was literally an orchestra that played throughout the, the entire movie to kind of give them something else to, to pay attention to. So I thought that was interesting that, you know, like this is so, it's not that far in the past, but it's like an outlandish entertainment venue that we would never, I don't think the regular viewing audience would ever sit for a completely silent film these days unless it was like super art house i've had that debate actually with kj and tom could someone do a silent film now they did in 2009 they won an oscar yeah, right they won best picture the artist who was this the artist yeah oh okay, okay. another I silent film more... i haven't seen yeah <laughs> it's really I, I good actually. more regularly <laughs> yeah i guess they don't do it regular well, well I, maybe i'm getting the year of the artist wrong I think it was a little later, right? It was like 2014, maybe. But still, it's um, not like another version of the the medium. Very, it, it's very rare. I would say it's the artist is using a lot of conventions to the medium. I don't. Know, what do you think, KJ? No, no, no. I meant there's the artist, and then there's a void. <laughs> like it's not like a subset of storytelling right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess you're right because before that, you had the Mel Brooks movie, right? Silent movie. And I can't think of too many others. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's basically zero movies, right? Two movies in yeah. the last fifty years. But I mean, like the like Mel Brooks is is using it as a comedic trope. Like he's using it to, to to he basically he's telling you the name of the movie, a silent movie, to force you to realize that what he's going to do. Like that seems like it's way on the nose. Like this movie today would have starred Kevin Hart or Dwayne the Rock Johnson, and it would have been tramping through New York, and they obviously would have been on soundtrack. Like this action comedy movie would not be silent today and i like you can get away with some like super dramatic piece like i've never seen the artist but i'm sure it's very dramatic uh and very poignant but like a, a comedy action film is never going to be silent again i mean the artist was comedy you know it was kind of in this vein 2011 2011 okay yeah i, I but i see your point like this is this is an era of films that's not coming back, right? And that's fine. You know, things 
have to change and, and move on. You know, like the seventies aren't coming back either. Um, you know, so like Jaws killed the nineteen seventies, uh, and and that's fine. Like things have to you know evolve and change. Um, I suppose I I like these movies a lot for the the development of a character between the different movies. So you see how the little tramp is in different circumstances. You see Lloyd's bespeckled fellow in different circumstances, the stone face in different circumstances. Um, and there's also a real strong tie to theater, especially with Chaplin and with, with Buster Keaton, who was a vaudeville actor since he was, God, I think four years old is when Buster Keaton started in vaudeville. And so the inheritance of film from theater is really kind of crisp and clear in these movies. Um, and also, you know, they are really funny and, and really kind of touching. The inner title cards are really witty. That's something that I wanted to bring up, even from the beginning, like the first title card we see, they take what, take their baths on Saturday baths on Friday so that they can do their Monday laundry on Sunday. Like that's how fast the city is. Like it was great. Like there was some real humor in those intertidal cards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I did. I, I did like those a lot because they, you could tell that they were written and edited and rewritten and they got them to like the smallest number of words to get exactly their point across. And it was like you said, very, very witty. I, I did like those. The old timers are looking for a fight. And he's like, I haven't fought with anyone since the war, except my wife or something like that. Like, <laughs> you know, it was, it was really good. It, it, again, a bit of a tangent. I know there probably will not be a, a silent film renaissance, but the one thing I really enjoyed about our podcast is I had not had any experience with silent films and we've watched a bunch. And I really still wonder if there's like a way to do it in the modern world that's more of a niche but still develops an audience. Even this artist uh, movie that you're bringing up, it still was taking place in that time period. I'm saying, could it be done not representing the silent era? And I, that's, I, it'd that's be interesting. a cool experiment. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. like it, 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 not a nostalgia trip or a, yes, a just celebration of another age. Style. Yeah. I, will, I will be watching the artist though, because it does feature a dog named Oogie. Oh, so in, in, was, uh, in, the vein, in the vein of King Tut, I'll be watching uh, James Cromwell, Penelope Ann Miller, and Uggy the dog chew the scenery, literally and figuratively. Oh, very <laughs> good. <laughs> so the trivia question we saw in this movie, two great Yankees, Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. What is one thing Lou Gehrig did at the plate that Babe Ruth never did? I'm going to say he hit for the cycle. I'm going to guess he pointed to where he was going to hit the home run. Was he a character? Was he a switch hitter? Did he? I don't believe so. Oh, okay. No. No. The thing Lou Gehrig did that Babe Ruth never did was have a four home run game. Oh, that's quite an accomplishment. That is a very accomplishment. Yeah. Babe Ruth had a few three home run games, including slacker. Yeah, his last season. So, what? Here, another. What? What was Babe Ruth's last season? Who was it with? Oh, who was it with, or when was it? Pick, pick your poison. Did he go back to the Red Sox? No. I know he that's went, where he came from. 
You went to the Boston Braves. This is the Braves started in Boston, oh. 1935, and he had six home runs yeah, that season. Yeah, I thought it was 35. Yeah. Yeah, three of which were in one game. So that was his. Uh, they didn't do like uh, the Hunching Tigers. Like they didn't oh, end up in... tigers. He didn't go to he didn't go to Japan, Mr. Japan. Japan. Oh, I don't I don't know what the history of Japanese baseball is. That would be a fascinating little history to learn about. Um, but no, I don't believe he. I think he retired after 1935. There was an understanding he would move into a managerial position, but they intelligently decided that would not be a good idea. Well, Babe Ruth wasn't the only one swinging for the fences today. Chris took this one down. These transitions are getting better every week. Audience, Nicely you're going to miss these ones. Nicely day. done. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> Congrats, Chris. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. Done. Thank you. I did this all for King Tut, the dog. <laughs> that was a clean sweep for you tonight, right? Oh, yeah. uh, I I think I got all four questions. Yeah, yeah, you and Luke Gehrig, four home runs. Although although two of them I was very sketchy on. I didn't. I wasn't sure of the taxi cab, and I certainly wasn't sure of the uh, of Kent. Although I got lucky, I guess. Enough yeah. to get the W. Mm-hmm. You can find more of our content wherever you listen to podcasts on our YouTube channel, Twitter at Talking Studios, and our website TalkingPicturesTrivia.com. We are extremely grateful to all those who subscribe, like, follow, and leave a review. What do you think happened to the horse? Let us know on Twitter, TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com, or give us a call at 201-467-8679. Try to be positive, please. (laughs) Thanks again, Chris, for joining us today. Thank you guys very much for having me. It's always a blast, and I, I look forward to quizzing you guys next week for the first time on The Lord of the Rings. I hope that you're ready for it. Oh, boy. You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15 and check out our sister podcast, Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. You can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. I can also be found on Twitter at The Nicknamed. Join us next time, as Chris already alluded to, when we discuss his recommendation from 2001, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. And yes, we're going to do the whole trilogy. Ding, 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 ding. Next week, we'll be discussing The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Tom, how was your watch? I watched this originally when it came out in theaters. I believe I was a senior in high school. And I've seen this movie, I think, a number of times. I think the only time I've actually seen the theatrical release was actually in the theater, but I tend to watch the extended version because I think this is the one, um, the, like the one of the few movies where the longer version is is better, and uh, or the one few trilogies anyway, and it was great. I I really enjoy how each moment is kind of fully lived. The performances are excellent, and it all hangs together with the the kind of the the depth of the world building. It seems as if the art and set direction have matched Tolkien in their commitment to world building. It's phenomenal to look at. Um, yeah, the acting's great, and it's it's like tender even in this this epic framework. 
you see things like Endgame and the, the, the Marvel movies, and a lot of them are entertaining. And I think Endgame is even better than entertaining, but they don't have these little beautiful moments uh, in them in the way the Lord of the Rings movies does do. I, I really loved it. Chris, how about you? I definitely saw this movie when it came out in theaters. It was one that I was very, very eagerly anticipating when I was also a senior in high school. Uh, and I remember seeing it two, three times in its first run. And then I remember going to college and going and like basically during every winter, we would go as a group and go and I would see it with different friends from college. We'd see the the, the subsequent sequels that would come out. And I, I agree with you. I think the extended version is by far the best, but not everybody's seen it. So uh, we stuck with the theatrical version, but I, it's a fantastic movie. I watch it probably once a year. Uh, I usually go from pillar to post with The Hobbit and all of the Lord of the Rings movies because I'm a little bit of a an uber geek, if you will. And I don't know. I'm a huge fan. I love it. What about you, KJ? How do you feel about this uber epic? I also love this movie. Um in, in high school, I had read the books, senior year, like everybody's saying, it's coming out in the theater, came out on a Wednesday night. I called everybody I knew, nobody would go. First time I'd gone to the theaters by myself and it was absolutely great. I loved every minute of it. My favorite watch was actually in a Philadelphia venue called the Man Center. So it, it's kind of this, uh, I'll call it a concert hall that's mostly outside. It has a lawn, you can bring a, a a blanket with a picnic and, and well, food, alcohol. Um, and actually one of the guests on the show, Andy, um, was singing in the orchestra that was playing live with the movie. So they had the big screen playing the movie, but all the sound was, was live. So that was a really cool watch. Um, apart from the watch for this show, my most recent watch was with my daughters and they enjoyed it, but I, I think they more liked Orlando Bloom. I think they only had eyes for the elf. Um, but if, if you guys are going to watch it, you being the audience, and you're going to do the extended edition, here's my advice. First, break it up into parts. So start the movie and then go until about where Sam says, one more step would be my furthest step from the Shire or whatever he says. Take a break, pause, then watch up through the Council of Elderon, you know, and my weapon like that. Get up to about there then take a break and then finish the movie get the whole adventure then in in one in one piece how about you nick well how was your watch this was a wonderful walk down memory lane i have not seen this film in its entirety in a long time i also like everyone else watched in the theaters read all the read the books and I went even further back then. I also purchased the extended edition, which I watched numerous times, even the extra DVDs that had all like the behind the scenes, the creative designs, the making of, I just consumed all the material I could at that time. And I haven't seen it since I I've moved a few times and that DVD collection goes with me, but it has not graced another DVD player in quite some time. So I was really happy to watch this again, so much that I said, we have to do the whole trilogy. We were considering just doing this one with the Amazon series coming up uh, in September, but I said, no, we, we got to do them all. And I'm really looking forward to discussing this with everyone. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring is available on HBO Max at the time of this recording. So feel free to go on and watch it if you have that service. <laughs> 